earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today's part six in our series, The Acts of the Resurrection Life. If you've missed any parts in this series, the podcasts are freely accessed at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Our journey through the book of Acts is a thematic one, tracing the lives of the apostles and disciples of Jesus, highlighting the resurrection power they exhibit. We're also spotlighting the active work and power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, today's installment is, The Holy Spirit Made Me Do It! And once again, we'll observe the ministry of Philip, but this time to the Ethiopian eunuch in the second half of Acts 8. But first, I'd like us to hear some insights from a bike rider who tells us, At first I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of the things I did wrong so I would know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. God was out there, sort of like the president. I recognized his picture, but I didn't really know him. However, when I finally did acknowledge this higher power, it seemed as though life became more like a bike ride. But it was a tandem bike, and God was on the rear seat helping me pedal. I don't recall when it was he suggested we change places, but life has not been the same since. God actually makes life exciting now, adventurous even. When he took over, it was all I could do to hang on. He knew delightful paths, up mountains and through rocky places, at breakneck speeds. Even though it looked like madness, he would say to me, keep pedaling. When I got worried and anxious, I'd ask, God, where are you taking me? He chuckled and didn't answer, but I started to learn trust. I soon let go of my unadventurous life and began an adventure with God. When I was scared, he just leaned back and touched my hand. He brought me to people with gifts that I needed, healing, acceptance, and true joy. They gave me their gifts to accompany me on my bike ride. Actually, our journey. God's and mine. And once again, we were off. He said, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage. Too heavy. So I did, to the people we met. And found that in giving, I received. And our burden became lighter. At first, I didn't trust God being in control. I thought he'd wreck things. But I soon discovered... God knows bike secrets. He knows how to lean the bike to take sharp corners, dodge large rocks, and speed through scary passageways. So I'm learning to shut up and just pedal, 
even in the strangest places, and I'm actually enjoying the view and the cool breeze on my face with my constant companion. And when I feel I can't go any further, he smiles and says, keep pedaling. Well, friends, today let's observe someone who kept pedaling, a man who could have said, God, where are you taking me now? But instead, he allowed himself to be driven by the Holy Spirit. And this man is Philip. We'll finish Acts 8 by looking at the second half, verses 26 through 40. But as preparation for this session, let's recall one thing Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John 3, 1 through 8, during his conversation with Nicodemus. In verse 3, Jesus tells him, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Evidently, Nicodemus initially interprets this birth as a natural birth. Since he replies, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus just continues, No one can enter into the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Holy Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit, per verse 8. Friends, let me offer an understanding of what I call a thorny statement by Jesus, that being, unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Over time, four different interpretations developed by various scholars and Bible students. But let's notice the very immediate context, which helps us properly and correctly interpret this so-called phrase of mystery by Jesus. In verse 4, the verse right before Jesus' statement in verse 5, Nicodemus says, How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. My take here, friends, is this clearly establishes that the conversation is all about a real, natural, physical birth being given by a mother. Then in verse 6, the verse immediately after Jesus' mystery phrase, Jesus himself says, Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You must be born again. So a contrast has been set up here between the flesh and the spirit, between being born once and being born twice, or born again. I believe Jesus' intent is to alert Nicodemus that being born of the flesh only, that is, being born of water, is not sufficient to enter the kingdom of God. We must be born again, or a second time, subsequent to our natural birth, in other words, be born of the Spirit. Friends, the Apostle John already gave us a preview of this in John 1, 11 through 13. We become children of God, born not of natural descent, but born of God. Then in 3, 8, Jesus mentions the wind that blows wherever it pleases and concludes with, So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Friends, I propose... That when Jesus says, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit, he's talking about born-againers, about us. We Christ followers are also like the wind. How are we like the wind? 
Well, our English Bibles kind of mask that answer. The answer lies in the word used for spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, along with a play on words subtly woven into this verse. The word for spirit in our New Testament is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. It's where our English words pneumatic, as in a pneumatic drill, and pneumonia, a lung condition, come from. Have you ever thought of the Holy Spirit as the holy wind of God? And this in no way demeans the Spirit's personhood. In Acts 2.2, on the day of Pentecost, the presence of the Holy Spirit is described as a mighty rushing wind. Friends, I contend that the Holy Spirit, in his activity or workings, is likened to the wind. And I believe Jesus likens us Christ followers to the wind in John 3.8. Now, this forces us to consider a provocative question. Are we, Christ followers, living free enough in our schedules and routines that we're open to be blown around by the wind of God to wherever he wants us to be? This gives a whole new meaning to walking in the Spirit. Oh, but Pastor Tom, that's not what the gospel tract portrayed. You know, the one with the picture of a little bunny and the nice grass and flowers and the headline, Come to Jesus. It seems we have no problem with receiving power. In fact, we seek after it. We want the power. We love quoting the first half of Philippians 3.10, don't we? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. But what about the second half? And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, being like him in his death. Oh, no! As Mr. Bill used to say, I say, oh, yes! You see, friends, when we became born again, we joined the Pneumocycle Club. Jesus said, hop on, I'm taking you on a spiritual adventure. You sit on the back and I'll sit on the front seat and steer. C.S. Lewis said that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, your will be done. The poet John Oxenham once wrote, not for one single day can I discern my way, but this I surely know. Who gives the day will show the way. So I securely go. Friends, the bottom line is we born-againers suffer over and over from spiritual amnesia. We seem to forget over and over that when we became born of the Spirit, we offered ourselves to be driven by the holy wind of God, the Holy Spirit. Recall Jesus' words, the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Have you ever been blown around by the Holy Spirit? Has there ever been times when you couldn't tell if you were coming or going? The book of Acts in our English Bibles has often been subtitled The Acts of the Apostles, but really it's more appropriate to call it The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Francois Fenelon, Roman Catholic archbishop, theologian, and poet, once said, The wind of God is always blowing, but you must hoist your sail. Friends, are we afraid to hoist our sails? Are we afraid that by hoisting our sails, we're submitting ourselves to the power of the holy wind of God? 
Or could it be that the wind is too unpredictable for our sensibilities? We prefer a predictable life, don't we? And so we settle for a predictable life. A predictable life is safe, isn't it? But a predictable life lacks adventure. A predictable life is boring. Well, friends, I didn't forget Philip. Philip was just such a born-againer as Jesus described. A born-againer who willingly hopped on the Numa Club's bicycle and was willing to be driven on an adventure. An adventure where he often heard a still small voice say, Keep pedaling. Philip kept pedaling because he knew he had received power, power to declare a message, and he had the Spirit's providence to direct him. Philip knew God's overall plan was what? To deliver people from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light. So let's observe how Philip does all this, and it's where Acts eight twenty six through 40 comes in. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the queen of the Ethiopians. Well, friends, this is really cool. As this story unfolds, we learn that this eunuch was actually on his way to Jerusalem to worship. But on his return trip home, he stopped and was sitting in his chariot, reading from the Isaiah scroll. Then the Holy Spirit directed Philip to go and hang out by his chariot. When Philip heard the Ethiopian reading from the prophet Isaiah, he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? The eunuch replied, How can I, unless someone explains it to me? So the eunuch invited Philip up into his chariot to sit with him. Is it a coincidence the eunuch was reading Isaiah 53, 7 and 8? I don't think so. Acts eight thirty-two and 33 quoted for us. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now, friends, the first thing I want us to notice as this story unfolds is that divine direction or divine providence, if you like, functions like bookends, bracketing this entire account. Initially, an angel of the Lord steps in and tells Philip where to go, verse 26. Then the Holy Spirit steps in and tells Philip to go and hang out next to the Ethiopian eunuch's chariot, verse 29. Finally, this account ends with the Holy Spirit suddenly snatching Philip away and transporting him to Azotus, where he continued to preach the gospel, verses 39 and 40. The second thing I want us to notice is that in the midst of Philip serving the Lord in Samaria, he is redirected. In other words, he changes course to head to Gaza for a very special assignment. We see this transition in verses 25 and 26, where our portion today begins. This assignment, as we're learning, is to bring the good news to an Ethiopian. Friends, this marks an enormous step forward toward fulfilling the ultimate goal. In other words, God's overall plan in Acts 1.8 to be Jesus' witnesses, ultimately to the ends of the earth. 
Remember now, the Samaritans were half-breeds, half-Gentiles, but this Ethiopian was a full Gentile. He was from a distant land. To the Romans and Greeks, Ethiopia might as well have been at the ends of the earth. The Greek writer and poet Homer said Ethiopians lived at the world's end. The Roman historian Herodotus declared that Ethiopia stretched farthest of the inhabited lands in the direction of the sun's decline. We further learn from today's text that this eunuch had wealth and position. In today's vernacular, he was like the CFO of the Ethiopian queen, according to verse 27. Now, friends, when Philip was invited onto this eunuch's chariot, he posed a good lead-in question. Do you understand what you're reading? There's spiritual insight here we'll miss if we just think that the question was intended to simply ask if the eunuch could comprehend what he was reading. The answer to Philip's question depends on what follows. In other words, the quote in Isaiah 53 the eunuch read, The Hebrew scriptures here convey God's plan of redemption to deliver people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son, the Messiah, Jesus. This plan is reiterated in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. For he, God, delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption and forgiveness of sins is precisely what is brought out in the passage the Ethiopian eunuch read. And what's even more amazing, just three chapters later, in Isaiah 56, we find these words, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord, Yahweh, say, Yahweh will certainly exclude me from his people, and let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what Yahweh says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than an everlasting name that will endure forever. Foreigners who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Well, friends, in Acts 8.35, Philip takes that Isaiah 53 passage and leads the Ethiopian eunuch to a knowledge of Jesus the Messiah. Now, an underlying question here needs answering. Why would an Ethiopian eunuch be interested in the Christian gospel? And even then, through Hebrew messianic prophecy? Well, friends, the culture backstory helps us answer this question. In these times, eunuchs were social outcasts. Some enjoyed high positions under female rulers or were put in charge of the king's harem. Still, there was a public stigma for eunuchs. Even in Judaism, the Mosaic law excluded eunuchs from public worship and declared them in a permanent state of ritual impurity, per Deuteronomy 23 and Leviticus 21 and 22. 
The only permissible area of the temple for eunuchs was the outer court of the Gentiles. But friends, this stigma was about to be removed forever. This eunuch was about to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness and be transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus the Messiah. Now, there's another thing we should see in the text. There's a subtle reference to the Holy Spirit's guidance that is somewhat obscured in our English translations in Acts 8.31. To Philip's question, the eunuch replies, How can I understand unless someone explains it to me? This phrase, explains it to me, or as the NAS reads, guides me, is the same word Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit's guidance in John 16.13, which says in part, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Then we see the eunuch invites Philip up into his chariot. Invited in our English Bibles is the same word used as a technical designation for the Holy Spirit. The word is parakeleo, the root for parakletos, a title of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, no one English word does this Greek word justice. A paraclete in the first century Greco-Roman world was a person who served in both legal and non-legal capacities as a person who came alongside someone else to offer help in resolving a matter. When serving in a legal capacity, words like counselor, advocate, and intercessor were used. But in non-legal matters, words like comforter, helper, friend, consoler, or encourager were used. The all-encompassing nature of these terms suggests that whatever kind of help was needed at the time, it would be given. So regarding the eunuch inviting Philip into his chariot, we might best understand the intention of this term to suggest to us Philip was invited to come alongside and offer the eunuch help. Friends, do you see what's happening here? Do you see how Philip is functioning as a flesh and blood representative of the Holy Spirit and his ministry? And in this ministry to the eunuch, Philip leads him to place his faith in the truth of the Hebrew scriptures. Now, friends, Luke has a good reason for juxtaposing this Ethiopian story with the portion we looked at last time. Remember Simon the sorcerer in the first half of Acts 8? The conversion of the Samaritan sorcerer occurs in the context of acknowledging the role of the Holy Spirit. In the context of today's story, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch occurs in the context of acknowledging the role of the scriptures. Luke is sending us an important message, friends. Both are important, the spirit and the scriptures. And each provides us with a checks and balance system. Peter helps us see this balance in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. No prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Paul also reminds us in his second letter to Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed 
And interestingly, the phrase Paul uses here is a combination of the word for God, theos, and a derivative of the word for wind or spirit, noustos, from pneuma. So, friends, the spirit that breathed upon the New Testament authors to write infallible scripture is the same spirit that breathes guidance and direction into themselves to be driven by the mighty rushing wind of God, the holy wind of God, the Holy Spirit. Remember, the wind of God is always blowing but we must hoist our sails. And hoisting our sails is a lot like hopping on the Numa Club's bicycle and letting the Holy Spirit take us on the adventure of a lifetime. Oswald Chambers aptly wrote, In the natural world, everything depends upon taking the initiative. But if we are followers of God, we cannot take the initiative. We cannot choose our own work or say what we will do. We have not to find our way at all. We have just to follow. And James tells us, we ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we are at the end of today's program. Our broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback on these teachings. Recently, a listener wrote in regarding part four. Great message. May we reflect on the early church leaders and allow them to inspire and encourage us in our struggles to be church in the world of 2021. Thanks for that. And if a word from the word is blessing you, please join the support team. Just ask me for the details. People like you keep this listener-supported program on the air. Thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.